listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for early August 2013. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Jetpack Joyride. Hey, I'm Aaron Sanfilippo. I'm half a Flipfly. My game of the week is not FTL. Hey, I'm Forrest. I'm the other half of Flipfly, and my game of the week is not Saints Row 4. Oh, Saints Row 4. I see you're picking on Saints Row 4 already. Uh, <laughs> uh, but just a real, a real quick shout-out. I've been playing some... Uh, oh, except you... Wait, did you say Saints Row or, or Grand Theft Auto? I said Saints Row. Yeah, I, I just... In my head. Uh, Saints Row 4 might be your game of the week in, in another week or so, Forrest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so tickled with how that's turning out. Uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. You gentlemen, uh, we're going to talk a little indie games for a bit. Uh, now, I noticed that you two gentlemen have the same last name. What's up with that? That's true. We are brothers. <laughs> and you work together? That's true, <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, now, I did, when we talked a little bit before, I realized you live in separate cities. Is that the key to two brothers working together in a small company? <laughs> Maybe, you know, although that, that definitely has its challenges, too. I think if we if we could, we'd probably like to be in an office together, but, you know... Just not in the in the works right now. So. Uh, you're in Wisconsin. You guys are from there. Uh, what did you do? So in a minute, I want to talk about the project that you're working on now. But before you were working on this project, what were you guys doing? Maybe a year, two years ago. Uh, Aaron, why don't you start? Sure. So I, um, you know, I came out of college and basically went straight into the quote unquote game industry. So I worked at Raven Software in Middleton, Wisconsin. Oh, um, I guess yeah. That's I, I keep forgetting. That's Wisconsin. You, yeah. Yep. There is game development in Wisconsin. <laughs> there is, yeah. It's not real okay. well known, but you know, id Software used to actually be in Madison at one at one point in history. Mm-hmm. Um, little known fact, but yeah. So I was at I was at Raven Software for uh, seven and a half years, just about seven and a half years. Um, most recently, I was working on Modern Warfare three. Uh, so that was my last <laughs> in- industry gig. <laughs> Okay, you know what, Aaron? I feel like I've been sold a bill of goods because I thought I was going to be talking to two guys who were just these can-do indie fellows working out of their basement who made this really cool game, and I'm talking to uh, an almost eight-year veteran of the industry. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Although, you know, you'd be surprised, or maybe I was surprised, that, you know, once I left that, nobody really cared who I was. You know, it was like I wasn't like the project lead or the creative director or – a well-known designer or anything. I had hardly been on Twitter or anything. And so I'm just kind of like some guy who used to work in the industry, you know? Um, Still, though, that's got to look good on a resume. Like, you know, sure, worked yeah, on yeah. Modern Warfare 3. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I, I could probably go to any studio and say, hey, I worked on Modern Warfare 3, and they wouldn't care that I'm working on Race the Sun, you know? But if I go to, say, you know, John Paulson at Indie Games and say, you know, hey, I worked on Modern Warfare 3, he's just like, okay, what do you got to, <laughs> what do you got to show me, you know? <laughs> What have you done for me lately? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Forrest, where were you a couple of years ago? So I'm I'm one of these guys that's always uh, I guess um, I, I've got the entrepreneurial bug. So I'm always trying to uh, I've, I've always been kind of doing one one sort of contract work or another. Uh, my my go to gig has always been uh, graphic design. I've been doing that for a number of years. Um, so graphic design, web design, um, basically for clients. You know, I do it out of out of my home and and mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. So that's that's what I was doing, scraping by that way. Aaron, was your work with Raven? Uh, so it sounds like Forrest is more into the visual art stuff. What kind mm-hmm. of work were you doing at, at Raven when you were doing working on those games? Yeah, sure. So I I went to school for computer science, and so I came in there as a programmer. 
Um, and it's kind of weird because they, they kind of divide the programmers into two camps. There's the game programmers and then the tech programmers. And I was a game programmer, which meant more or less I was doing kind of like half game programming, half game design, you know, kind of working with the level designers and implementing stuff and making it fun. Um, by the time I left, it was, you know, maybe you're familiar with like the Call of Duty thing where, it, you know, it keep, keeps growing and growing and they got like multiple studios working on it where it was just like I was more or less kind of like a cog in the level creation machine, you know, so I was, I was more or less like scripting moments in gameplay and stuff like that more than actual bona fide programming, you know? Sure. You, you call that the Call of Duty thing, but I think that's probably uh, symptomatic of most big budget game development. That's uh, true, yeah, that's true. Uh, well, it sounds, though, like then you guys have the, the perfect complementary skill set to create an, a, a, an actual game, uh, so at some point you guys decided how long ago to get together and and create your own game. When when did this start? Yeah, so we started talking. This is Aaron again. Uh, I guess you know a couple of years ago. Um, you know, it, what happened is you know the studio had a, a round of layoffs, and then I was kind of like, well, maybe I should start learning about how to do apps or something in case I get laid off, you know, or something like that. And, um, and then another round of layoffs happened, and so it's like, okay, let's make this this happen. And so what we did is we, we actually made an app together, and it was just like a, a musical app uh, for kids, and it was called Monkey Drum. And so we spent like a year and a half just like in our free time. I was still doing my job, and Forrest was still doing you know his stuff, and so we, we just kind of collaborated on this musical app, and it was like, you know, I guess just over time, as it got further and further along, we were like, you know, we could really make a business out of this at some point. And so we just kind of started formulating our, our plans for that. So it took a while to come together. And when it did come together, was it specifically for Race the Sun, the, the game you guys are making? Or did that come later after you decided we're going to make a game? You then worked out this kind of game? Or did you decide, hey, let's make Race the Sun and make a company out of that? So Race... Yeah, go ahead, Forrest. You can answer that. One. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, so we, uh, I'll, this is Forrest. I, I probably have to identify myself because, um, I, I guess we sound almost identical, uh, on, <laughs> on, on the radio or the telephone. So, but actually, uh, you know what? You don't. I can pretty oh, much, this, this can be a problem. You guys might like, I don't know, your brothers, you might look alike or something, but I, I can pretty much tell a difference. Oh, uh, good. Good. So, yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so I won't identify myself. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we, we basically, um, this goes way back to even to our childhood. We would sit around and, and just come up with ideas. And, and, uh, and when video games was the topic, we'd come up with video game ideas. So uh, basically all our lives, we'd kind of been brainstorming together, coming up with, with crazy things. So we, uh, by the time we, we came around to saying, let's do this, let's start a business, we had literally, we had a list of possible ideas that we could, that we could make. And, uh, um, a couple different times we sat down and we just sorted through that list and said, what, you know, what would be the best possible? What's the most fun? Um, and, uh, eventually Race of Sun kind of bubbled to the top and that was the one we decided to go for. So. So to get a, a sort of a bead on both of your backgrounds, last week on our podcast, we, we asked folks, uh, what was the first game that, that really blew your mind, usually as a kid? Cause, uh, you know, children are more impressionable. They, they see a video game, something. We, we all recall when it first got its hooks into us. Uh, to get a sense for you guys and your respective backgrounds, how would you answer that question off the top of your heads? What was the first game that really blew your mind? Aaron, why don't we start with you? Sure. So, I mean, I guess my first major game experience was Mario, but, you know, I, I'm trying to remember 
which I played first. It was either Doom or Star Fox. Um, and I, both of those were really kind of like awesome for me. And I was like, I got the, the low shareware disc for Doom. And it was just like I sat up at night playing that for hours at a time. And I think my parents didn't know I played it. And I was worried I was getting, I would get in trouble because it was violent or something. I was like 12, you know. But, um, but yeah, I really played the heck out of the, out of the Doom shareware demo. I, I, don't, I don't know if I ever bought the full version or whatever. And then Star Fox was like, we didn't own a, a Super Nintendo. But what we used to do is our parents let us rent one. For our birthdays. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. <laughs> oh, one so day like, a year. <laughs> one day a year. But, you know, there, there, were, there were four of us boys, and all of us could do it. So it was like four times a year, you know, we'd be able to, <laughs> to, to rent the Super Nintendo, and we'd always get Super Mario World and Star Fox for like three years. These are were, were like the two games that we got every single time. And I remember like we actually recorded with a VCR. Like my, my dad helped us, and we like, we spent like, the morning trying to like figure out how the, how the recording works. We re- recorded Star Fox and then like waiting for the next birthday to come around. I remember like watching the, the <laughs> video recording of Star Fox. And like by the time we rented it again, like we were so used to, to watching and everything. It was just like super easy. And I remember like getting to the very last level the first time I played it after that because I had like memorized the whole game. It was, yeah, so that was pretty, pretty important game for me, I guess. Aaron, I can picture you like the kid in front of an arcade cabinet machine who doesn't have a quarter, just sort of sitting there forlornly staring at the, the demo loop, which you yeah, just play. Totally. Uh, I also, what I love about that, Aaron, is I can totally see the kid whose mind was blown by, uh, by Star Fox growing up to make Race the Sun. I definitely yeah. see some continuity there. Uh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Forrest, what, uh, what first got it hooks, its hooks into you as a kid? I guess well, the same thing. You guys grew up together. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, that was that was kind of thing. So Star Fox was was huge for me. I I, I probably that probably would be off the top of my head the one that I'd go to. Um, you know, and and for me, I've I've always been kind of a, a fan of of story. Um, but I'd played you know some of the space sim games and stuff, and the, and the way they presented story was a wall of text that you were supposed to read before you played the game. You know, and it was just no fun. Um, and just jumping into Star Fox and having you know this kind of this kind of imagine imaginary story that you just got little snippets of. Um, it just grabbed me, you know, and and so yeah, it was it was Star Fox for me as well. Well, we'll be hearing a bit more in the podcast about what kind of games influences uh, are exerting themselves on you guys these days when we talk about our games of the week. But specifically now, I want to talk about. Uh, Race the Sun, which uh, first I'd like to lead in by explaining how I found it. Uh, I did get a press release from it, and I remember reading over the press release and thinking, oh, it's you know, it's these indie guys, and they're making an endless runner. That was sort of the, the takeaway I got from the press release. And I kind of felt bad for you guys, because a lot of people are making those. It's like in a way, it's almost like the new tower defense game. It's, it's, yeah. this, it's this yeah. very accessible genre. So I was like, well, that's kind of sweet. They're making an indie runner. I'll, I'll look at the little video that, that they've attached to it. Because I always like to at least take a quick look at what folks are doing. And the moment I saw that video, just like, snap, I like had to play this thing. Um, and part of what really hooked me, and Forrest, I guess this is uh, thanks to some of your work. I presume you're responsible for the visuals. The visuals reminded me a lot 
of some of the early games that blew my mind as a kid. And I'm specifically thinking of a developer named Damon Sly, who uh, did the, this game. It might have even been part of a series called Stellar 7 that mm. I could play on my Apple II GS, I believe. And it was just these flat-shaded polygons assembled into spaceships, and it, you drove around and you blew them up, and it had this virtual Tron kind of look to it, but really clean lines from the graphics back in those days. So the moment I saw the video of Race of the, the Sun, it made me think of that, uh, and Battlezone before that even, and I just wanted to get in there and see what it was like, and once I played it, I was totally hooked. Um, so uh, uh, you guys tell me, uh, in your own words, and then later in the podcast, I want to tell you, let me see, how many things do I have listed here? I have one, two, three, four, five. I have five things that I think makes Race the Sun special. Um, but first, I want to hear from you guys, as folks who've made the game, what makes this not just another endless runner? Uh, and either of you can, can jump in first, whoever has an idea. How, how would you explain to someone, hey, this is not just some cheap little endless runner? Sure. Want to go first, Forrest? Sure. Yeah, I'll jump in there. So, yeah, the... Uh, um one of the big things is that it's it's much more of a um, I've heard it described as a low altitude racer, you know. So the the, the core mechanic isn't um, running um, or or necessarily even even like race car racing. It's it's a, sort of a combination of flying and um, <laughs> flying and racing, where you have these these kind of custom uh, uh, physics that work work on you, and you you have to learn that. It's not something that just necessarily comes easily um but then uh what you're racing through is is this um sort of bizarro universe where the sun is setting ridiculously fast um and you are trying to catch up to the sun um and 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 the reason you're doing that is because the craft you the the craft you're playing or the craft you are is solar powered and without the sun you die so you're in a constant uh race with the sun itself um so that'd be one thing Mm -hmm. and am i correct for us that those visuals are mainly yours um, yeah, I mean, we we definitely collaborated, and we we went through several uh, iterations. Um, so we both had uh, heavy influence on there. But uh, um, Aaron has Aaron has kind of uh, been able to so set up the frameworks for me to work with, and then allow me to to sort of arrange things and um, mm-hmm. take the concepts that we've both agreed on and make kind of make them pretty. So yeah, yeah. tell me a bit, and then Aaron, I want to know from you what what you would say to explain this as a distant endless runner but first for us tell me a bit about some of the iterations that the visuals have been through how has it changed over the course of its life to get to where it is today sure so we started out with kind of a um you know i I think we knew we wanted kind of a desaturated uh low color um, look to things but we started out with sort of more um I guess a semi-realistic look to the 3D models and things, and we were we were kind of working on uh, houses and and obstacles that had had you know they, they weren't symbolic really they were they were they were mm-hmm. semi-realistic, um, and and as we developed we realized that those were kind of hurting the um, the game they were they were not uh, they, they were not realistic enough you know <laughs> and and they and they weren't they were they were taken away from the imagination i guess and so we realized that creating symbolic objects allows the imagination to kind of run wild and and fill in the gaps and it, and it makes for a much more interesting visual did you ever play much with getting away from that harshly uh, monochromatic look that it currently has yeah we tried uh, we tried a lot of different color schemes for some reason the game itself started out from a, a, a sketch or a, actually a google sketchup 
sketch. Um, and, th- and that color scheme was kind of yellows and desaturated blues. So we started out with something similar to that. Um, and just, I guess we just kept removing color. <laughs> and, and eventually Aaron was like, why don't we just make this thing black and white? And we did, we started from black and white and then slowly added in um, the colors from there. So. Well, I love that. I love how, uh, simultaneously uh bright and and clean it is like it's 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 very harshly it's like a harsh tron world uh Mm -hmm. you know tron has these um i almost think of them as french these blue and orange glowy bits and i think the Mm -hmm. production designer on tron might have actually been french uh but you guys do that virtual world like you mentioned forrest um, moving away from actual recognizable physical objects and it gives it this really weird alien look but without that crazy Tron color, uh, it, the, the visuals are, I would almost describe them as almost Teutonic impressionistic kind of visuals. Uh, and it just, I love how harsh and clean it is. Um, and it definitely uh, lends itself to wanting to race through all these shapes, and especially when they start moving and you start introducing different behaviors to the world. Um, so, all right. So, so Aaron, yeah. how how yeah. are you? Uh, so, you're you're. It's just an endless runner, right? What makes sure, this any sure. different? <laughs> so, you know, I, I think one thing that you know I get when I play an endless runner, like say Temple Run or or even Ken of Alt or something like that, is there's very there's there's not a whole lot in the way of variety, and they actually added a lot more variety in Temple Run too. But it's more about just like rote imagine uh, uh memorization you know it's kind of like okay yep. I, I see this thing and i'm going to go left and i'm going to i see this thing and i'm going to go right you know or, or this here's a log and i duck under it you know with race of sun we really kind of like set out to make something that's going to be more of a lasting experience both in terms of like how long a session lasts so once you get pretty good at it you know you can fly for five ten you know even 15 minutes and you're actually like every time you improve your skill you're actually seeing a little bit more of the world that maybe you didn't see before you know and so we we divide the world up into these regions and there's kind of a downtime between the region. And so like in region two, you're going to see some new patterns and then region three. And it's really cool seeing people like, you know, having the same uh, abilities and everything, but once they get a little bit better at the game skill wise, suddenly they're seeing something new that they never saw before, you know? So that sets it apart a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to just kind of like being endless in every direction. So we've got this, this world generation system that, um, you know, that, that, uh, you know, just kind of like generates new world as far as you go in, in any way. So you can go as far as you want, left or right, and it just kind of feels like this big, expansive world, you know? Um, so I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and I guess the other thing is just the, the fact that the world itself is created with a tool that's actually in the game. You know, it's something that hasn't materialized to, to a great extent yet, but we really hope that, you know, going forward, we're going to see a lot more like user created worlds that are. You know, hopefully, totally different from what we have now. And there's a couple already. You know, there's a there's a space mode that we made, and um, you know, we let people change the camera angle and stuff. And so, you know, we're hoping to see like some top down kind of things and stuff like that, or like more slow paced ones with more of a focus on obstacles and stuff. And so, like in terms of like what we can explore with the gameplay, just with what's in there and what our community can explore, is kind of uh, you know, it really kind of sets it apart from just like your typical iPhone game, I think. Uh, so I want to hear a bit more about how you make the levels. It's obviously, I think you've mentioned on the on the website, it's a combination of some handmade. I'm assuming they're modules, maybe that get dropped in there, and then procedural stuff. Um, for instance, when I go through the, it's a closed-in arena, and it has uh, 
barriers falling from the left and the right and the left and the right, and you mm-hmm. get this really gratifying sense of, of jinking left and right through them. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's obviously something that's handmade to get the user to feel uh, you know, to, to build right. that skill with jinking back and forth. But then there's obviously a lot of random stuff. So explain to me how the combination works of procedural and handmade. Sure. So that was actually, that's been a really kind of long iterative process. So, you know, what we did at first was, you know, when Forrest was talking about the early, the early versions where there was like more realistic type things, we basically just had like a few different classes of objects. And so there's like a rock and a big rock and a really big rock. In a house, and a in a dog house, and like a, a giant building, you know. And we oh, hey, isn't the isn't the dog house by the way still in the game? That is, that? yeah. That's, yeah. That's, yes, that's like the last actual like handmade, you know, like created model that's in the game. We haven't we haven't taken it out yet, <laughs> but uh, but so so basically, that originally it was just kind of like these things would just be scattered randomly by that by the code, you know, throughout the the world. And as you went farther, it would it would kind of like make them more dense and you would speed up. And so it got more challenging, but it, it was boring. You know, it was just kind of like after a while, you're just seeing these randomly scattered things and it looks random. And when it's just randomly scattered, you know, it's each part of the world is unique, but it doesn't look unique, you know? And so what happened was we launched our Kickstarter and sorry, I'm kind of making this a long answer. I hope that's okay. No, it's <laughs> so, absolutely okay. So we launched our Kickstarter, and you know, the the first week was just kind of like really lackluster um, response. You know, we, we set a goal of twenty thousand dollars. It wasn't that high, um, and we had like a thousand dollars by the end of the first week. You know, just like abysmal reaction to it. And so I went to Reddit and just kind of like some other friends and stuff, and just asked people like, you know, what what's wrong with this game? Like, why aren't you? Why isn't anybody interested in it, you know? And, and mostly people were just saying that it looks boring, you know? It's just like the same thing over and over again. And so what we did is we, we kind of went back to the drawing board, right, in the first week of our Kickstarter and said, how can we make this world a lot more interesting really quickly? And so we came up with a system where we would actually, like, hand create each pattern. And like you said, there's that, that section where there's, like, you know, things falling over back and forth. And so we have, like, a, a square pattern that's hand created. And then we just put a whole bunch of those in a, in a mixer, basically. And this algorithm says, give me, like, ten random patterns, and I'm just going to, like, arrange them randomly according to what stage you're in. And I think what you you get from that approach, Aaron, is this combination of, you know, even though random patterns might be dull, there's this sense of discovery with randomness. Uh, yeah. But the, the achievement and the tailor-made experience for the player you get when you create these patterns and, and these little modules. And that, that, for me, is one of the things that really keeps me coming back because you're also doing, if I'm not mistaken, and, and I want to hear more about how this is supposed to work, every day I play – I'm getting a new level, right? It's not like when I play Jetpack Joyride, I'm always going to go through that first little section with these obstacles, and the next section is going to have these obstacles, the next section. And so every time I play, I've got to go over Area 1, over Area 2, Area 3. Every time I jump into Race the Sun, daily, it's going to be different levels. And isn't that a little crazy? Yeah, so I mean, it's... it's. Um I, I guess so that, you know the way the way it works is you know we, we we have these sets of patterns and we have maybe so for that first region maybe there's a total of like um, 25 or 30 total patterns that could be used and on any, any given day you're only going to see maybe six of those in that first region and so it's kind of randomly picking those but yeah based on the date so you know if you play tomorrow you might see a few of the same patterns 
but you might see some totally new ones too. And, you know, I, I think as we go, we're going to keep adding some more variety and stuff. So, you know, maybe we'll do a game update and you'll see some patterns that you'd never seen before, you know? Um, but what's cool about that is, you know, as you get better at it, you know, maybe when you first play, you make it first through the first region or the second region. And after you're really good, you know, maybe you make it to region five, say one out of every four or five runs, you know? And so you're not seeing that region very often, but there's going to be certain patterns in there where it's like you might play for a few weeks before you see a particular, you know, event happen or something like that. And so we're really going for that sense of discovery with that daily, you know, daily world generation. Now, one of the uh, five things that I think makes the game special, and when I hear that it's like different every day, uh, I wonder why you didn't do this, if you thought about doing this, if you're maybe still thinking about doing this. One of the hallmarks of a typical Endless Runner and something that I loathe in Endless Runners uh, <laughs> is micropayments. You know, I can buy a little power-up when I play Jetpack Joyride. I can get a little booster. Uh, I can uh, buy a new vehicle or, or whatever. Uh, is this is this going to happen with, with Race to Sun? It sounds like Race to Sun right now is a retail package, but you guys totally could have sold it as you know, pay to play every day or buy power-ups. Uh, I'm not seeing any of that in the beta. What's your philosophical opinion on on that part of, of game development? Yeah, I'll let you feel that one first. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, that's, that's kind of a, a personal pet peeve of ours as well. It's, uh, you know, um, free-to-play, and, and, and really um, the micropayment is the, um, the I, I guess when we say free-to-play, that's really what we're talking about is the micropayment system. Um you know that that's become so popular, and it's becoming the the default de facto way to design, especially a small indie game. It's like you just have to design it that way, and 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 we've come to realize that uh, although there are there are possibly not there, there are less annoying ways to design free to play, it, it's very very difficult for it to. Um, to not get in the way of, of designing a fun game because you're you're basically designing um, ways to block the player and keep them from having fun um, so that you can monetize them and uh, we, we we don't like playing that way we would just much rather have this game be out there um, pay once and enjoy it um, okay. so I mean we definitely are open I and mean, we, we have a, a free uh, beta right now and and eventually we, we will probably figure out a way to do some kind of a demo Um so there will be, you know, a quote unquote uh, free <laughs> uh, to play version at some point, but we're, we we really have no interest in putting like um, microtransactions in the gameplay itself. And one of the things that I appreciate this too is a significant part of the hook for me continuing to play Race the Sun. Uh, it's very heavily a score based game, and mm -hmm. I feel that if I'm being challenged to come up with a, a high score on a game and then I can actually pay money to increase my score, I just feel like I, I, I want no part of that kind of shenanigans. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because then if I get a higher score than my friend, you know, I don't know if he just bought the 25 cent booster when he got this card. So I, that just, for me, scuttles this idea of a high score. Mm -hmm. And yet that's a big part of what you guys are doing with Race to Sun. It's very scoring based. Uh, yeah. Tell me, yeah. tell me a bit about uh, how you're doing scoring uh, and how you're making it matter, basically. Sure, so I can, I can take that one. So, um, yeah, when it came down to it, I, I don't know that we set out to make a scoring game. It was just kind of like, you know, and I might be giving, you know, um, giving ourselves away a little bit, but it's, 
you know, it's tempting to think that we kind of designed this thing, you know, with, with some genius idea, but a lot of it was just kind of like evolution, you know, so we, we put it up on Congregate, and we started kind of like iterating on it right away, just in, in early alpha, and we just realized that, like, you know, you really need, really need uh, some kind of a leaderboard or high score just for people to be engaged, you know, because that's kind of like, you know, the point is to get as far as you can, and so the initial version, it had a, it had a score, but it wasn't like a super important thing and then we added it and suddenly like the average play time went up by two or something like that and i was like oh man people really like this you know and then we started like let let me i I do want to ask aaron so when you had it when it wasn't a scoring based game what were you doing with the there are collectibles called tris that give you a multiplier Uh, yeah was was that just not even part of the game originally uh i'm trying to remember i think the tries are something actually that we added um it's been almost a year now. I, I think the tribes were something that we added afterwards just because, you know, initially, like I said, it was just kind of like randomly scattered objects. And, it, you know, in the first pattern in particular, it was kind of easy to, to dodge those things. And so it was like, um, you know, I, I think we had a score, but it was just purely based on your distance. And then we added the tries and it was like, OK, the tries are kind of fun. And then it was like, what can we do to make that even more exciting or make it more worth it? And so we added the multiplier mechanic and stuff like that. So a lot of these things were just kind of like us stumbling and around in the dark <laughs> until we found something that was fun, you know. But um, that's that's awesome to hear because I can't help yeah. but think, oh, these guys are so smart. They they knew that whole risk reward of okay, there's a there's a and I was calling it Tris too. I just look at the word T R I S. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was, you know. You see those tries, and you can use them as a reward at the end of a difficult stretch. Uh, yeah. And when you get a certain number of them, you earn a score multiplier. So the stakes rise, and then furthermore, you don't just have an instant fail state where if you scrape or touch something, you die. You can accidentally like scrape something, and almost worse than dying is you lose your multiplier. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so for me, that's just such an important part of you guys' design approach is the the tries, the, the score multiplier, the penalty, how that ties into the risk reward. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, like I said, a lot of that was just evolution mm-hmm. of just trying stuff, you know, and that's one of the cool things of being, you know, indie developers is that we can just kind of like experiment and, you know, Jonathan Blow has talked about this a lot too, or it's just like you, you just kind of ask, I think the way he puts it is like you ask a question of the game by trying something and you just see what what's cool about it. And it's like, oh, that's actually cool, maybe not in the way that I thought, but, you know, let's let's explore that a little bit this way, you know. And so we've done that before where, you know, we, we definitely didn't write out like an overall design document for Race of Sun start to finish, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely been a process of just kind of like iteration, you know. And so like with a score, one of the things that we're exploring right now is, um, you know, we don't have like a, a global permanent leaderboard. So we just have like a, a set of scores for each day. And that was kind of like coinciding with uh, the world that's generated each day. And so... You know, it seemed like it made sense from a game design point of view, like, okay, everybody's playing the same world and everybody's on the same leaderboard. And then when the day ends, we're going to save that leaderboard off and you can still see it there. But, you know, now there's a totally fresh leaderboard and so everybody has a chance to try it again. Everybody's on the even even footing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let me ask, do you have any provision, um, because it, it's a standalone game, like I don't think you guys hook into... Uh, you know, Steam or anything like that. Do you have any provision for me to only look at the scores of, of people I know? Or because for me, a leaderboard is really only as good as the filter I can apply to it in terms true, of yeah. my, my friends. Is that part of the design at this point? At this point, it's not. You know, I, okay. I think if, if we can get on Steam, we're you know that that type of stuff definitely makes a lot of sense. You know, or maybe we'll even 
maybe we'll even come up with some kind of like a, you know, like a region based thing or something like that. Cause yeah, at the moment it's like, I know what you mean. You, you know, you get your experts in there and it's like suddenly they've got 30 million points and I'm at 200,000 and it's like, I'll, I'll never catch up to them. You know, um, the, the daily leaderboards help a little bit with that because it's like, you know, maybe the, maybe the, the super genius players taking a day off or something, you'll have a chance, you know, but, um, I do yeah. recall, <laughs> I, I wish I could remember the name of this uh, shmup, one of those like shoot 'em up shmup, one of those bullet hell kind of games. And I forget what it was. It was made specifically for the iPad, so it, it had region data to tap into, but it had that kind of global leaderboard. But then I could also uh, d- uh, sort through the data by, by nation, by state, by city, mm-hmm. by zip code, and I could drill down and basically see, even though, uh, I might not be able to look at my friends. I could see, okay, how am I doing against people in my zip code? For oh, that's really cool. If we ever get to the, the to the point where we have like multiple players in the same zip code, I think we'll have made it. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you also are doing something cool with. Actually, I don't know how this works with scoring, but it's a nice social mechanic. Tell me about these relay races. This, yes. this relay option, yeah. Sure. Forest, you want to take that one? Yeah, I'll take that one. So uh, the relay was another thing where, where, you know, it's, again, you know, like Aaron says, it's not that we sit down and we've just got, you know, we're, we're just like geniuses and can figure this all out. But as we're going along, that that, that freedom to just sit down and say, what what would be fun here? What would be interesting? And and, and, uh, and just sort of free ourselves from existing uh, mechanisms uh, has, has led to some interesting things. And this was one of, one of them. Uh, and basically the concept is, is you've got, uh, an individual run where you can, you know, say, say you, uh, you traverse, uh, three regions and you score, you know, a uh, quarter million points. Um, basically for every individual run, we've, we've allowed the player to, uh, share their progress, uh, publicly. You can do it like on Twitter, Facebook, or via email. And um, another player can basically join your team, and you can you can form uh, up to four player uh, relay team. And uh, basically, you combine your sp- scores, you combine your distance, and now you're competing with other relay uh, teams on a, on a special scoreboard. And so the way it works is that I'm let's say the three of us are on a relay team, and I get to region two, and I bang into a wall and I blow up. I pass a link along to one of you guys, and what happens when you get the link? Yeah, so when you pick up that link, you actually start out where the last player died. Um, so you get um, pushed forward into the world, maybe um, further than you could get on your own. Um, you get to explore, and, and like Aaron described, because the the world is it has depth to it. There are things you can't see in Region One or Two. Um, you actually get to get to see more of the game that way. So you, and, and you also get thrown in at a much higher speed, so it's, it's pretty deadly. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, what happens when do we just keep going until the sun sets? I guess there's no penalty for dying. It's just a matter of how long we can get by passing it around, or. Yeah, it's basically just pure skill. Like you can, you can essentially go as far as you can survive. Um, so it's just, yeah, survive as long as you can and get the highest possible score. So with the so, relay specifically, there's four. Like it's it's four runs. So each oh, yeah. relay is, is exactly four runs. Oh, oh, I see. It's not like I die, then Forrest goes, then you go, Aaron, and then it can come back to me. Like you only get four tries among right. the team. Yeah. Right. I see. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And you could play it with two players, you know. You could pl- pass it. You could pass it to me, and I could pass it back to you, and back to me. Right. You know, right. we could do it that way. So, you know, two to four players. 
Okay, but that makes sense. It's always a straight up four tries, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you guys have been touching on some of the stuff on my list of five things that make it cool, and I'll recap that at, at the end. But one of the things that makes it cool that I was thinking might have been the limitation for the relay race, um, an endless runner needs some kind of – I guess it doesn't need it, but, but for me, a good endless runner has some kind of a timing gimmick or some impending doom. Uh, and for you guys, it's that solar gimmick that you mentioned at first. The sun is right in front of you, so it's always visible. You know, you can always see how far the sun has to go before it sets, and then it hits the horizon, and it's slowly sinking. And because you're in a solar-powered craft, you want to be in the sun, or you start slowing down. Uh, right. I, I love how clear-cut that is in terms of making it clear how long I have in terms of this in, in turning up the pressure, like as I see the sun getting low, as it starts yeah. sinking below the horizon, as the color starts changing when it's getting darker. Uh, and then even, because if I'm in the, sh- the shadow of something, I'm losing the, the solar power that gives me speed. As the sun sinks, the shadows get longer. So the right. game even right. gets more challenging. There are fewer safe areas for me. Uh, so it's this great impending doom mechanic. Uh, And I love how elegant and intuitive it is. Uh, Did did that have to be iterated? Definitely, yeah. Somebody actually asked me about that in a a chat room the other day, like, how did you come up with a design for this? And it's almost embarrassing, like, how iterative it was. You know, I I think we didn't even have, like, the dynamic shadows in there in the first pass. And it was just like, okay, what if, you know, the first first pass didn't even have the sun? I think it was just kind of like you're racing through this world. And then we added the sun, like, we need, like you said, you know, you you need a a timer element, you know, and so we added that in there. And then it was like, the first thing we did was we added clouds, and the clouds would cast a shadow. Um, and then eventually it was like, well, why don't we just make everything cast a shadow, you know? So it kind of ended up with this point where it's all consistent and feels really well designed, but it was definitely kind of like a, a shotgun iteration type approach. Right. The thing about the, the uh, like, what I wouldn't like about the clouds, it seems like the clouds would be beyond my control. When when it's the the shadows of the geometry of the level, I can choose you know where I'm going to drive. If I'm going to stray over behind this big clump of mountains, that's on me. You know, it's not yeah, like a shadow yeah. just passed in front of the sun. Totally. Uh, so much more of a sense of player agency there. Well, there's definitely there actually are clouds in the game still, so it's it is totally different. So they're kind of sparse, but the way it works is like you know you see kind of openings between the clouds. And so it's almost a different type of mechanic where you have to kind of like fly back and forth so that, you know, the cloud doesn't come between you and the sun. And so the cloud's kind of coming from the horizon up towards the sun. And it's like, I've got to go left or right. And that's where those jump power-ups help too. So it's, you know, sometimes you can kind of jump and then like fly horizontally really quickly, you know. And so a lot of these little like different types of gameplay requirements kind of pop up just as a result of those, those elements in there, you know. Now let's let's talk about this different gameplay because the, when I first sat down to play uh, Race the Sun, uh, it was very different uh, from after I'd been playing it for like an hour and a half, and that was very different from after I'd been playing it for, for three hours. Uh, there's a lot of uh, gameplay flexibility here that's not immediately apparent, and you guys have sort of built it in with a I guess a leveling system. Um, so as I play and I do these missions, uh, which I guess I, I think of those as something from Jetpack Joyride. I don't know if they predated that. But there's this idea that I get little mini goals that I can accomplish. And when mm-hmm. I do so many of them, uh, I go up a level. And when I go up a level, you're unlocking some new gameplay mechanic. Uh, yeah. yep. So uh, in a way, it's almost like you're not showing the player early on what 
all these cool things you do, you're kind of reserving that as a reward to get somebody hooked. Mm-hmm. Um, so what uh, – okay, I guess in a way I don't want to say anything about what those are because I love discovering them. <laughs> uh, and I almost don't want to spoil it for anyone, but I would rather actually let people know how cool some of those are than worry about spoiling it because I think it's a great reason to play. Um, sure. so, so for instance, the jumping. I was completely flabbergasted once I realized, holy cats, these guys put in a vertical element to the game. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then you also have, uh, I'm trying to, oh geez, the world portals. I can yeah. leave the level sometimes and go play a different level. Uh, right. That's, that's a little crazy. That's insane. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so tell me what, uh, what sort of things, I almost don't want to know this, but I want to know what sort of, right now the build that, that's out, people can get to level 10, correct? Right, yes. yep, yeah. yep. And I'm guessing you guys are sitting on stuff beyond a level 10, right? It's not like once I get to level 10, I'm done with the missions and the leveling up. Is the idea right. that in the final product, there's more? There is, yeah. Yeah, I think we've got 25 levels planned. Um, okay, why don't you just tease then some of the stuff that will be unlocked in the later levels for me? <laughs> yeah, let's see. So we've got um, at least one more game mode, and we haven't revealed that yet. Um mm-hmm. I think we maybe we tossed the name out there, but we haven't shown any, any footage of it yet. Um, that's going to be like a more difficult game mode. Um, okay. And then there's uh, Wait, what do you call that? If you've mentioned the name, what, what is think, that? I think we uh, apocalypse mode is what it's called. So <laughs> Very we haven't, nice. <laughs> we haven't we haven't actually shown it yet, but uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's that, and then there's um. So one of the things that people complain about is uh, you know, just after you've gotten really good at the game, the first region gets a little bit boring. You know, and the second region gets a little bit boring. And so we added something that's like a, a region skip portal. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's this thing that just kind of randomly appears, and it won't be that hard to find. But if you find it, then it'll give you the option of skipping to the end of that region. And, you know, at the moment, you miss out on the multiplier that you would have gained by getting all the tries between ah, right. you know, the beginning and then. But at the, on the flip side, it's like you can skip to the next region, then you can practice those further regions or, like, explore new areas that you hadn't seen before. Or maybe it'll let you finish some objectives that require you to be further along and stuff like that, you know, so it's kind of like a, a trade-off type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, we kept, we kept unlocking new abilities, and so, like, I think right now we have the, uh, we call them uh, abilities or attachments, so, like, little things that you can assign to your ship. So right now there's um, uh, the jump storage, so you can, you know, store up to two up to two jump power-ups on your ship. The uh, magnet, the magnet, the mag- which I found hugely, hugely helpful, yeah. Totally. So I think we've got five total. And then some of those have like an upgraded version too. So like there's a level two magnet that lets you grab things from a distance, and and you'll you'll have like up to three slots, and so you kind of have to pick which three you're going to be best for your playstyle and stuff like that. So, right. um, Good. yeah. So um, we, we we try to front load a lot of the cool stuff just because we do know like okay, it takes some skill to get there, and when we look at the stats, it's like only you know maybe forty five percent of the players have made it to that maximum level after a couple of weeks, you know, and so we do want to like show them more of the cool stuff at the beginning, you know? And so as you as you get towards level 25, it's more like, here's level two of this thing, or we're going right. to give you a little bit of bu- bu- bonus and stuff like that, you know? But, um, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, before we uh, explain to folks how they can get it when this is due out, uh, I do want to real quick go over the five things that I think makes it uh, more than just a, an endless runner, uh, all of which we pretty much touched on. I love that there are no micropayments. Um, I love that you guys are just bucking that trend. It's a scoring game. I shouldn't be able to p- 
pay to, to get a better score. Um, uh, and I love what Forrest was explaining before. Um, unlike a lot of endless runners, I really get the sense that my, my skill matters. Like I'm actually, my reflexes come into play. I'm actually doing something other than just sort of jinking around dodging things. Like there's, there's this sense of thinking. Uh, I, I, I get to, I see a, an obstacle in front of me during one of the later regions and I think, well, there's no reason I can get through that. I'm gonna, there's no way I could do that. I'm just gonna go around it. But eventually mm-hmm. I learn, oh yeah, I can get through it. You know, eventually I'm not so scared of those blocks that are turning over that killed me every time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I get the sense that you've created a world, an alien world that matters and my skill helps me get through it. So that's the second thing. Uh, I love how it's, it's a combination of procedural and random. Uh, and that therefore there is this sense of level design. Uh, you know, those, those elevated walkways, those elevated, uh, roads, for instance. I love being able to go up there and, and, and I love seeing a ramp and knowing that one of those is coming up. Um, so I really like how it's not repetitive. Um, but that I learn certain patterns. So I, I love the, the level design. Um, I love that sun gimmick that I mentioned, um, that we talked a bit about. And I love, because I don't know that, surely there's a lot of these on the PC, but I love that it's a PC game. I'm so mm-hmm. used to Endless Runners being like little iOS developments and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, but it just feels so nice on a good PC with a, a game controller in my hand or even just on the keyboard. Uh, sure, sure. So those are five things that, uh, if you're listening, I, I, I heartily recommend this. And for those five reasons, I think it's not just another endless runner. Um, so now you guys tell us uh, what's the current release schedule? How can folks get it? What is it going to cost? Uh, give me the details on that. Go for yeah. it. Oh, sure. So, uh, yeah, um, so so we're pricing the game uh, right now for the PC at ten dollars, um, and that that's all inclusive. So you get the uh, when we finally do release, you'll get those two game modes plus um, because there is user created content, you'll get all the user content as well. Actually, uh, real one- quick, so because we didn't talk about that, so you, oh, yeah. you mentioned you did mention the tools. I think Aaron mentioned them before. Uh, Forrest, what? Uh, th- it seems like that would kind of blow the lid off what you guys are doing in a way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. These look like very sophisticated tools. There's already a few instances you can look at of what what can be done with these. Uh, that's just something that just anybody can get in there and make stuff and post it. Will you guys be hosting content? Uh, how will how will player made levels work? Yeah. So actually, we um, that that's actually all live in the current uh, the current beta. So there is a uh, basically you 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 go into this separate whole separate section of the game, um, but it's it's all built in. You don't have to like launch another executable or anything, and and you can create the patterns. Um, it's the exact same tool that we use to make the game basically, but it's a point and click. Um, take this object, put it here, um, create a new object. Um, you can even do like scripting type stuff. You can add animations, um, kind of freeform. Uh, movement, um, sounds, sound effects, and things like that, and then you can just package it all up. It gets saved as a, a tiny little uh, XML file, and we host it, and uh, other players can download it. It's it's actually kind of fun because when you when you go and start browsing these, um, players can rate them, so you can you can sort by rating and stuff, and you can any one of these you just hit play and and, and it downloads and plays immediately. Um, you can just try the user created stuff. So. Which, by the way, is, a, is another instance where uh, I really hope at some point down the road you guys implement some sort of uh, friend option because mm-hmm. I would love to go through and see, you know, if I get a list of 20 friends playing this, what things they have made specifically. Um, yeah, 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 totally. 
So. <laughs> All right, so for so uh, ten dollars, that gets you the, the the game, both modes, the world creation mode. Uh, go ahead, I cut you off. Yeah, no, that's fine. And um, I think we have a, a hard date finally set for release, right, Aaron? I don't know if we've announced it yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's coming right up. Uh, but um, r- right now, you can actually get your hands on the beta. We have if you if you go to our website, uh, flipfly dot com. Uh, you can you can download the the current beta, which gets you up to level seven, I think, right? In the public beta, yep. In the public beta, you can get to level seven. Um, you can uh, play multiplayer. You can play with the world creator, and it, it's it's just free, you know, so people can try it out before we get to the final release here. So that's probably honestly the best way to get your hands on it at the moment. Um, and then of course, once you have the game, we have like a little latest news feature, and we'll pop up once the game is released and let everybody know. So. And- do we have any provision to support you guys uh, elsewhere, like on Steam Greenlight or that sort of thing? Yes, so we are we are definitely on Steam Greenlight. Um, check out Race the Sun. Um, we, we've uh, we've been working hard on that. That's a, that's a hard place to get noticed, and uh, we finally uh, feel like we finally started to get some momentum there. But all the help, uh, <laughs> every bit of help is 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 uh, just uh, we'll be very grateful for it there. And uh, we also have pre-orders. So if you just see the game and you're like, okay, I, I want this, I like it, you know, you can you can definitely pre-order on our website right now, and you can also pre-order the soundtrack and and buy a poster and that kind of stuff as well. Who did your soundtrack, by the way? Because I've got it running through. I, it's one of the few games where I didn't turn off the music. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> oh, good. Well, actually, I'm, I'm working on the soundtrack. That's one of my side gigs is, uh, is I, I pretend to be a musician. So, Well, you, you've done very well with it, Forrest, because I don't, I've heard it many times over, and it is not annoying me yet, and I've, I've played a lot of this, so well good. done. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, no, I, I really like how uh, kind of haunting it is. It, it fits with the graphics very well. Cool. Uh, so, and just to specify, FlipFly, I believe, is spelled with two P's, F-L-I-P-P-F-L-Y? Yes. Yep. It is, yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, good. So, uh, I, I cannot wait to hear about this hard date. Part of me is, um, I, I sort of feel like I, I don't want to play. Actually, here's a question. If I'm playing the beta, will my progress get reset? Uh, or because I've set up an account, you register an account when you play because you log into your servers. Uh Will my progress get wiped if I play the beta, or should I just go ahead and wait till the release? No, it'll it'll save it. It's 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 kind of like the final executable name and save file and all that stuff. So it's it's not saved in the cloud; it's saved locally. But it'll it'll transfer over to the final game too. So good. So if you're listening, get out there and start leveling up now. Uh, yes. You'll be glad you did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, well, gentlemen, now I would like to talk to you uh, on a broader level about what kinds of things you're playing these days, what kinds of games you're into. Um, yeah. So we've all three picked our games of the week. Um, I'm going to go ahead and go first um, because uh, I don't quite know what to make of this game yet. A, a game just came out this week uh, from a studio called Larian, and I believe uh, they might be Dutch. Uh, you know what? I'm not sure where they're from, but they have this almost lovable... Uh, overseas approach to development that you see in some of the smaller studios in in Russia and the Netherlands. Uh, And they've made a real-time strategy game called Dragon Commander. And it is called that not because you're commanding dragons, but because you are a dragon. Okay. (laughs) And you're, you're playing an RTS, and every now and then you can appear on the field as a dragon. And you are way overpowered. You kind of break the game and that you can just kill enemy units. You can send your units around underneath you. It's, uh, you, you almost literally take your army under your wing and drive them over to, to blow up other things. Uh, that's their basic approach. 
Um, the shell they have built around this RTS, where, where you're a dragon, clearly inspired by Wing Commander, in that you're on a big old Zeppelin. The whole theme of it is steampunk. You're on a big okay. old Zeppelin, and you move around to different rooms, and you have your throne room, and you talk to the commander. You, you actually, you're the king, so you go to the throne room, and you just talk to your queen over there, and you talk to your advisors, and you can go to the bar, and you talk to guys in the tavern, and you talk to a little engineer gnome about your tech upgrades. Um, and then as you're talking to people, every now and then, a decision comes up where you have to decide do you fa- a, a political issue that might favor some of the races. Like, do you, do you do something in favor of the elves or the dwarves? And what this does is on a turn-based strategy map, it affects the parameters for the real-time strategy game you're playing. So mm-hmm. if, for instance... I'm trying to take over a territory in the Dwarven area, and I do things that make the Dwarves angry. Like, for instance, uh, I don't get, let the, I don't let them um, transport their brew across state lines or whatever. There's silly little political issues like that. Then when I fight in Dwarven territory, I have a lower unit cap during the RTS. Um, huh. So there's little crazy things like that. Um, they have... Uh, the, the whole thing is just it, – it, it's a little crazy, but it's one of those crazy, so crazies that just might work. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not a very good real-time strategy game, and I think that will ultimately be its undoing. Uh, what should be the foundation for it when you're in there as a dragon blowing stuff up uh, just feels a little too loosey-goosey. Uh, it's like if I'm playing StarCraft, I don't suddenly want to turn it into an, an arcade action game where I blow up all the work that right. done and the right. other guy is done. Uh, so I, I admire their creativity. I admire their ambition with this. Uh, but after poking around at it a while, I think the whole thing just kind of falls apart. And here's one example. Here's one early indication that they thought of something that they couldn't quite design around. This idea that when you're playing, after a certain amount of time goes by, you can spend some of your resources to materialize your dragon. And as I said, the dragon completely breaks the game. Uh, sure. It's just way overpowered. There's no real balancing there, particularly because the AI never gets a dragon. Uh, so it's kind of like you're – and, and when I talked to them about this, they were like, well, we, we felt that was unfair. We felt we couldn't balance the AI. But it's like they had this really cool feature, and they couldn't get the AI to use it correctly to make mm-hmm. it feel like a decent part of the game. But they were so in love with it, they didn't want to question whether it was appropriate. So Right. Uh, so I really admire what they've tried, but I don't think it quite works. Um, yeah, that's, that's tough. <laughs> Uh, are either of you guys inter- – oh, go ahead, Aaron. Sorry. I was going to say that stuff because it's like, you know, sometimes uh, the core thing that you set up to do with a game, like wouldn't that be cool if there's a real-time strategy game with a, a giant dragon in it that you can send out, you know, um, doesn't actually work that well, you know, and it's hard to let that go. But I don't know if that's actually what they did when they set up to design the game. But Right. Well, part of it is there There are a lot of real-time strategy games that have some feature that lets you – they're kind of like stalemate breakers. Like you mm-hmm. build a you build a, a titan, for instance, in a game called Warlord's Battlecry or Age of Mythology. Those both have sure, these titans sure. that are super powerful. Um, you know, a lot of RTSs have that, but they reserve it for late in the game, and they keep the game from being a stalemate. Uh, right, here, right. Yeah. Here, it's just like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we just gave it to you right <laughs> off the bat? <laughs> totally, yeah. 
because literally the way it works is there's a there's a I think it, the default is a 45 second cooldown. There's a 45 second you, that's your waiting period before you can break the match. You have to wait 45 seconds <laughs> into this real time strategy game, and then for for a negligible cost, you spawn this crazy big dragon. Uh, so. Interesting. Yeah. You know what you were describing what you were describing yes. early on with the. Uh, you know the the choices that you make and that affects the match. That that actually reminds me a lot of uh, Advance Wars, and I think I, I just played the original like uh, DS version. But you know you could pick your, I think it was your like your battle commander or something like that. Yes. And they all had like slightly different attributes, and it didn't necessarily change the match, but it changed what your capabilities were, and it totally made you play each match a little bit differently. Like okay, I've, I've got this guy that like you know his his artillery range is like two more than everybody else, and so I'm totally going to come in from the east instead of the south you know and like you know attack them with that or whatever you know and and that's that's a great example because at the risk of selling people on dragon commander more than i intend to they have a really cool kind of tech tree where you can make specific choices about what your units do um and you research you either can bring in like powerful expensive units or you can improve your cheap units or you can bring in uh new abilities for the cheap units um and you can even have commanders lead the battles, which affects the auto-resolution if you don't want to play the battle. Uh, so they have a lot of those kind of cool choices. And they even, oh, I love this, they have cards that you get. You draw cards that you can play on the strategy level to do things like improve your income or freeze this guy's, like these particular units. Like this turn, he can't move his trooper units, for instance. Or you can play a card to cut down his population in an area or to destroy a, an installation he's built. Um, hmm. But yeah, they, they clearly, uh, at Larian, the studios that made Dragon Commander, they love those kinds of choices like you're talking about from Advance Wars. Yeah. Sounds like so. a game that needs some balancing, maybe, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> all right, so that's my game of the week. I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence about it, but there's uh, sure. some lovely creativity in it. Uh, so I'm, I'm enjoying some of that. But All right, so uh, for you gentlemen, um, real quick, are you into RTSs? Just I want to sort of feel out what kind of games you guys like. Does either of you play StarCraft, for instance? Yeah, I you know I, I played a fair bit of uh, StarCraft One. I, I, I tried StarCraft Two, and I think I was really busy with work, and so I just kind of like shelved it for a while. Mm-hmm. I I used to do land parties a lot, and I really liked um, ah. Empire Earth. And uh, for a while, we played Age of Age of Empires, and then um, mm-hmm. Rise of Nations is probably our, our go-to one that we play like every. Every time we do a land party, so and that has that element that you're talking about, where it's like there's that end game balancing factor, where it's like I'm gonna bring out the nukes, and it's pretty much game over then. You know? Yeah, yeah. Rise of Nations is so good with that, with those stalemate breakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, mm-hmm. by the way, the 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 loopy creativity that I see in Dragon Commander with their their steampunk meets fantasy. Uh, makes me think of it's nowhere near as creative and it's nowhere near as integrated with the gameplay but it makes me think of rise of legends which was the follow-up to rise of nations that big huge games did. oh yeah yeah i played that one too oh god i loved that game i so miss mm-hmm. that game uh, mm-hmm. yeah uh, let me also ask you guys this what is your highest level character in world of warcraft <laughs> oh man i I played that for about a year because when I was at Raven, you know, they're, they're owned by Activision and we got like free ah. <laughs> one year accounts, you know, and I think the free one year account was kind of like their way of just getting, you know, 8,000 people more addicted to the game. So we'd all subscribe afterwards or whatever, you know, but like we, I got to level, I got to level, uh, 30, like whatever the level is where you get a mount, um, right, right. I think 30 or 35, somewhere in there. 
and then I and then I realized like how much gold, more gold I needed to get a mount, and I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> Forrest, did you ever fall prey to that particular affliction? I, I haven't. No, actually, I, I, for for whatever reason, I've I've never been able to really like get into um, Warcraft or um, I, I'm not sure. You know, I, I really like uh, fantasy movies and fantasy books and fantasy genre in general, but I've never. I, I you know, yeah. So there's there's my admission there. I, well, actually, Forrest, <laughs> I, I consider that a blessing, Forrest, because they are huge time sinks. Yeah, and I, I think in a way, it's it's far less about the setting. The setting can be part of it. It's far less about the setting than it's about uh, really tapping into that Skinner box reward mentality. Yeah. Uh, they're such time sinks, and they're so ruthlessly designed to be time sinks. Uh, mm-hmm. The setting is just kind of frosting. Uh, sure, sure. Yeah. That's why, you know, I, I always talk with Aaron about this, as, you know, because he always tries to convince me to play a really good you know, really good uh, RPG or strategy game. And, and sometimes we just talk about the guts of the game, you know, like how much of this is just really a numbers game, you know, could this right. game, could this game be pre- presented entirely in a spreadsheet, you know, and is that fun? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I think, yeah, you can't, it, if you look too closely at most games, they will fall apart into spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think that's yeah. a dangerous that's approach. That's true. Yeah. Well, then of course, Oh, go ahead, Aaron. Sorry. I was going to say, I actually bought Guild Wars. I bought Guild Wars two about a year ago. I bought the pre-order and I got into the beta, and it was like we we started this project and we, you know, we were running out of money, and so it was like I felt the guilt every time I started to play because it was like, oh man, I know I'm going to be like in this for five hours and I should be working or something like that, you know. But that's another game that's, that's pretty awesome, you know. I I think I preferred it to the World of Warcraft. You know, I played I played Guild Wars one quite a bit too. Um, yeah, for for all the uh, kind of disdain that I have, intellectual disdain, because I fall prey to playing them, but I was going to say, for all the disdain that I have for MMOs, Guild Wars 2 is really one of the good guys. I mean, they have just got it, as far as provide, it's not just a time sink, like, it's really hard to mm-hmm. ignore, there are just so many other effective hooks than just that standard Skinner box stuff. There's so many different kinds of content, and they're constantly updating it now. Every two weeks, there's some kind of new live living world uh, uh, setting that they're introducing. Uh, those guys are just so clever in the mechanics of the different characters. Um, actually, yeah, Aaron, yeah. don't don't play Guild Wars two until you guys are finished <laughs> with Race the Sun. <laughs> That's probably good advice. I, yeah. I played it for like you know three hours with my wife, and it was just like, oh man, this is. I need to I need to dedicate some more time to this because I was just like just scratching the surface, you know. <laughs> yeah, un- uninstall that, finish Race the Sun, and then, then you can jump back in. Yeah, once you get the final nice. version of Race the yeah. Sun. Uh, well, then, Forrest, let's start start out with you, just to get a sense for, like, what kind of games you're into. Here we are, early August. What would you pick as your game of the week? Um, so, for me, it's it's actually an unreleased game, um, but it's uh, it's definitely out there. It was, uh, I think it was a pick for uh, Indiecade last year. Um, it's called uh, Gorgoa, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, really simple puzzle um, game. Yeah, I don't even it, know what this is. Can you spell? Can you spell the name for me? Yeah. Um, so I, I spell it G O R O G O R G O A. Let me see if I can. I, I probably I may have gotten that wrong. I should I should uh, see if I can find the the past uh, winners at Indicade.com. Uh, Forrest, I love that I have never even heard of this. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, G O R O G O A. Yep. Okay. Cool. 
Yeah, so this is um, a guy named Jason Roberts is making it, and um, he's uh, hand-illustrating the game. The entire game is hand-illustrated. Um, the, the animation and the art is absolutely phenomenal, just, just mind-blowingly good. Um, and, and basically the game is, uh, it's kind of, it, it's a tile-based puzzle game. Um, so you, you're looking at four tiles generally um, that seem completely unrelated, um, but they are connected somehow, and you you, you can basically uh, stack them together or move them around side by side, and and suddenly the, the, these still images start coming to life. Things are animating and moving between the images, um, and uh, it's one of those games that just seems so simple when you start out. And there's just a demo right now; the game isn't even out yet. But it just it's you, you know my jaw just hit the floor a couple times while playing it, and I'm like, okay, this is I, I need to play the rest of this game. So. Mm-hmm. Does it remind you if because uh, what you're describing I, I seem like I, I can't quite wrap my head around what you're describing it makes me want to see it but does it remind you of any other games? That's part of you know part of the thing that that blows my mind is I can't think of another video game to compare it to it it reminds me of um, of like children's books you know where there's uh, like these illustrations and you're trying to you're trying to teach a child to, to make uh, these correlations between objects, but then he's taken that totally into the adult realm where the correlations are much more uh, abstract and hard to see. Um, and uh, I, yet, to be honest, I can't think of anything to compare it to. How did you find this? Uh, I found it through the Indicade website. Uh, they, you know, they've got a track record of, of uh, discovering some pretty awesome stuff, and I was surfing around on their website and uh, and found it. So. And when, uh, what is this? Is a, I presume this is a PC game. Yeah, this, um, the the demo at least is for Windows and Mac. Um, he actually has Gorgoa.com, so if you want to check it out. And on his website, he says uh, late 2013, early 2014. Uh, probably, so, on- so probably 2015. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think he's doing it everything, doing everything in the game. I think he's doing the, the programming, the art, and all of that. Um, but the the demo is is very playable and and feels really polished. So, and it sounds like uh, with your background with with visual arts and stuff, this really sort of appeals to that aspect of you, I presume. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, just to see an artist realize something like this is is uh, you know it makes me simultaneously want to quit and want to get better. So, <laughs> I know exactly the feeling. <laughs> All right, so Gorgoa, uh, and I'm sorry, you said his name was uh, Jason Roberts? Jason Roberts, I think, is the guy making it, yeah. Great, awesome. I look forward to looking at that. Um, All right, Aaron, here we are, uh, early August 2013. What would you pick for your game of the week? So I found this game on uh, IndieGames.com, and it's called A Ride into the Mountains. Oh, Um, I love the name of this. I I have no idea what it is, but it makes me want to play it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so it's it's an iPhone game or iPad. I like an iPad. And it's basically like an archery game where you're a guy sitting on a horse shooting things. And so <laughs> it's, you know, it's really simple, but it's kind of like it doesn't have a lot of the, I guess, tropes that you'd expect in an iPhone game right now, you know. So it's it's a story-based kind of thing where it's like it'll you finish one mission and then you move on to the next one. And then, you know, there's a boss fight and then you move on to the next level after that. And I haven't got super far in it just because we've been so busy, but it's kind of like, Right away, it evoked feelings of like The Legend of Zelda and Shadow of Colossus, you know, where it's like really well animated, um, just 2D kind of pixel art type stuff. Um, and I, I don't know how many guys made it, and it was a really small team. And they said on Twitter that like they were considering just putting it out there for free because they didn't know if it was good enough and stuff like that. But it's just like this gorgeous little game where 
you know, they, they, they just have like this archery mechanic that's just really well tuned. And so, well, that's kind of what I want to ask you about. Like, obviously, it's not you just tap on the screen to shoot stuff. Is there any sense of like using a bow or pulling a? a yeah, bow yeah. So it's basically you, the way it works is you touch the screen, and then when you drag your finger, you're going to shoot in the opposite direction that you drag. So mm-hmm. you, you can touch anywhere on the screen. So I usually just kind of like touch in the middle of the screen. And I, I pull my finger back, and your guy kind of aims in that in that direction. And I think they have like a little bit of an aim helper. And then there's just like these kind of alien black flying things that are kind of like um, harassing you or whatever and the story kind of unfolds as you go and so you know it's just kind of like this timeless type look you know where you know this village or type kid on a horse or whatever and you know this the game starts and this thing kind of crashes down in the distance in the mountain and so you ride into the mountains to investigate um but it's just it it, it reminded me of zelda in the way that like the, the enemies come in and there's a pattern of three and they do the like this little pattern that you recognize and it's kind of like the boss fights in the, in the old Zelda games where it's like, you know, you learn that pattern and then you can kind of overcome that and they throw another one at you. Uh, and so it kind of switches perspectives between like a side view and then you'll go to a top view in some parts. And there's one level that's like you're riding like along the apex of a mountain. And so like you're in this top view and it's just like this really cool kind of parallaxing effect underneath. And so it's just like a really beautiful game, but it's also... Like I think the reason I appreciate it is that it's it's actually kind of hard, um, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like, you know, I, I think I get bored with games that are that are just kind of easy. And I think maybe a counter example is like Badland. It's a it was one of the ones that was in that free app promotion a few weeks ago, and and it's really fun and it's really beautiful and the sound is awesome and everything, but it's it's pretty easy, you know. And so, you know, I'll play this game, and I played it for, like, an hour, and it was, like, after an hour, I was kind of waiting for the difficulty to ramp up, and it was just kind of, like, slowly ramping up, you know, and I I compare that to this ride into the mountains, where it's, like, you jump in there, and I actually failed the level the first time, you know, and I had to try it again, and it's, like, right away, and I'm challenged, and I kind of want to get to that next stage, you know, and I think I've I've come to appreciate games that are just kind of, like, a little bit more difficult than that I'm comfortable with, you know, because it's, like, it taunts me with its difficulty, and I want to come back at it, you know. We uh, we had um, yeah. someone on the podcast last week talking about uh, Dark Souls, which is a from Demon Souls, which is a notoriously difficult game. But I feel that one of the one of the lessons that, that game design is has moved away from a long time uh, is this this fear of frustrating the player of being difficult. Um, mm-hmm. And I can, I can understand moving away from that, but mm-hmm. what I think those of us who really appreciate games realize is that there's a unique sense of gratification. That comes from beating a difficult challenge. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I don't, you know, when you talk about having to replay the first level of a ride into the mountains, I can't help but think, well, that must have been that much sweeter when you finally get to the next narrative beat, when you finally realize, okay, you realize you kind of had to earn that next little bit of the story. Exactly. Yeah. And it's 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 almost like a it's such a simple thing, but it's a lesson that we've we've kind of forgotten, you know, because it's like we've we've con- we've convinced ourselves that we don't want to frustrate people and we want to like make for the, the widest possible audience and if you know if, if 20% of the audience is getting frustrated and right. giving up on it then we're then we're doing a disservice and we need to make it easier my theory is like if you have an easy game you might have a you might cast a wider net and get a wider initial audience but if you make a difficult game that's still like fair that teaches people how to how to beat it you know and I think we've tried to accomplish that with our games too you're going to have a smaller initial audience but when they beat it, they're going to love it that much more intent- intensely, you know? 
Yeah. And so yeah. they're going to be that much more like into it, and they're, they're going to want to tell more of their friends about it. And like, I think I think Minecraft has this to a certain degree as well. And that first night where it's like you don't know what's going on, and you totally get killed, and it's like that that challenges you to try it again right away, you know. And I think there's something really powerful in that that maybe we've forgotten. Uh, has you, have you guys seen an indie game uh, from a studio called Clee or Clay K L E I called uh, Don't Starve? Yeah. <laughs> Because I have died so many times in that, and normally that would frustrate me, like having to start over. But I love that game, and I love how difficult it is, and I love how, despite repeated, brutal, agonizingly frustrating deaths, uh, it doesn't turn me off the game. They've just done something a little magical Mm. there with this brutal difficulty that I don't I don't mind the frustration. Uh, yeah. So Forrest, that, that's one you've played, Don't Starve? I, I haven't, actually. It's, it's on, you know, I've, I've got a list that's way too long, but that's one that I, it's on my list, you know, I've seen. I, I, uh, I followed development a little bit, you know, and kind of watched what they were, what they were doing with it, and, and, uh, but I, I, I still don't have, <laughs> I haven't actually played the game, so. Yeah, but brutally frustrating at times. Yeah. I mean, it mm-hmm. can be so disheartening to get a guy just so many days in, and you've got, You've got this awesome base for survival, and you're feeding yourself every night, and you've even got a little camp, and you're upgrading things, and you misjudge uh, when you're going to attack a, a bee, literally a bee, <laughs> because you need his stinger, and you die. Like, I, I just, uh, I, I love that kind of thing. And it's all on me. You know, I shouldn't have been fighting that bee if I wanted to stay alive. That was my choice. That was yeah. my decision. I put myself in that situation. <laughs> you know, I'm accountable yeah. for my own death. It's just like FTL when it comes down to you. It's the same way where it's like... Oh, right, right, which is not your game of the week, I understand. It's not my game of the week, yeah, so I don't know if I can talk about it. But <laughs> but, but, uh, but that's that's one that you've you've spent some time with, Aaron? Yeah, that's one I, I come back to probably a couple times a week, you know. It's just like, I always use it as a relaxing thing, you know, which doesn't make any sense because it's so frustrating, you know, but... <laughs> But it's totally like I haven't. I still haven't beat it yet. You know, even on the easy mode, I got to the boss and then I died. But it's like I, I just keep coming back to it because it's like I've got to beat that game. You know, I've got to, I've got to unlock that next, you know, ship layout or whatever. You know, but, but yeah, it's totally, totally brutally difficult. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think those kind of games just prove that there is a desire among some of us to be to be really challenged. That. Mm-hmm. that it, Many of us understand that frustration is a part of the video gaming experience, and so you know, bring it. <laughs> That's kind yeah. of our, yeah. So yeah. All right, well, uh, gentlemen, I've really appreciated your time today. I'm I'm so glad you came out. I I so am enamored of Race the Sun. I hope it does well for you guys. Uh, I certainly look forward to giving you some coverage on the site. If you're listening, uh, it has the absolute full Tom Chick approval for whatever that's worth. Uh, go to flipfly.com. That's F-L-I-P-P-F-L-Y.com. Uh, and throw the $10 at it. I'm, I'm almost, I almost guarantee you, you won't regret it. They do some really lovely, almost magical stuff with the look of it, with the feel of, of racing through the alien worlds. Um, and supported at Steam uh, for, for Greenlight as well. I encourage everyone to do that. Um, so, gentlemen, thank you for being here uh, today, and I wish you both the best of luck with the game. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> it's been great. Uh, for folks listening, uh, I also want to let people know, I've been remiss bringing this up, we are reviving our moribund social media doohickey things. Uh, so follow us on Twitter at, at QT3. 
the letter Q, the letter T, the number three, uh, and like our Facebook page. We're, we're putting up regular content there, uh, and we're actually tweeting things, so follow us on that. Uh, and join us next week for the Quarter to Three Games podcast. Until then, I'm Tom Chick, and I'll see everyone next week. <laughs>